Good afternoon. This is Dr. Joe, and I'm here with my colleague, Dr. I. And as always, we're looking through the window. Good afternoon, Dr. Joe. How are you? I'm good. You know, when I look through the window for the past week, I've been able to see it light outside in the evening for a lot longer. It's daylight savings time, and I know that bothers those morning birds who think it's a bit too dark when they awaken, but it does wonders to my spirit to see a hint of spring through longer days, Dr. I. Well, I think that's over with now. I thought they passed a law that we're not going to do that anymore. Well, we're doing it this year. We're doing daylight savings time this year. And then the Senate, the U.S. Senate, in in a rare uh, vote of unanimity, decided that we won't do daylight savings time anymore after next year. But that still has to pass the House. So we don't know if that's going to happen or not. But for right now, for the past week, as we record this, we're in daylight savings time, and it feels good to my spirit. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, good, good. Even it's raining, it's still spring. It is a rainy day. And you know what? Something else happened today that, that, um, that went all through my spirit. So this morning when I woke up in my neighborhood, I had a very brief power outage. The power went out, and it was very annoying to me. And the power outage lasted less than five minutes. I got text messages and emails from my electric company saying they had corrected the problem. But in those five minutes, I thought of all the ways that that morning power outage was going to really screw up my day. I wouldn't be able to get out of the garage. I wouldn't be able to cook breakfast. I wouldn't be able to get dressed. And then when I turned on the television, courtesy of my electricity coming back on, I saw a story about a Ukrainian woman who was awakened not by a power outage, but by a bomb breaking through her windows. And so when she looks out her window, she sees devastation and she sees horror. And we'll talk more about that in future shows, but a bit of perspective is is a good thing. So, so prayers to everyone around the world who's going through their own major wars or their own private wars today. Amen. We're going to... Go ahead. I'm sorry. I said, so what are we doing today? We are going to jump back into our celebration of Women's History Month. For those of you who might be listening to this after the fact on the recording, which you can do at any time by going to our website, thewindownow.com, you can probably tell from our references to the war in Ukraine and daylight savings time that we're in March, and March is Women's History Month. And so we spent the last few weeks focusing on local heroes. It's great to read about and learn about women who are fabulous and famous and well-known all over the world, but we encourage our our listeners, and we always encourage our listeners to do something as a result of our show. So we encourage our listeners to look around you as well, whether it's in your own home, your own neighborhood, your own schools, your own city, and just say thank you to women history makers, many of whom, as is the case with our guest today, may have started out on a small scale, but over time, them just being who they are professionally and personally have elevated them to to stature beyond their hometown. So we're delighted to have two guests on today, Dr. I, and I'm going to bring the first one on. Our guests today are in various um, professional um, walks of life. So we're going to talk to a nonprofit leader, and then we're going to talk to an attorney and business leader. But in both cases, what they do professionally reflects definitely who they are personally. So first, Frederica Wallace-Dina, welcome to the window. Hi, how are you guys? 
We're doing great. There is so much to say about you, and we're going to try to squeeze it into the time that we have. But for the most part, we're going to let you tell your story. And so since this is about history, we're going to start where we are right now. We're going to work backwards, Frederica. And I'm going to I'm going to tell our audience as we go some of the marvelous things that you've done. But I want them to hear it in your words, too. So right now, as we speak, you're in development. And I want you to tell us your exact title, but you're in development for an organization called Harlem Lacrosse. And I'm just going to put the question out there. They play lacrosse in Harlem. What's up with that? Tell us about that. Yes, I am the senior director of development at Harlem Lacrosse. And yes, we play lacrosse in Harlem. You know, lacrosse is one of those sports that um, really could use a little bit more color in it. And so we really work to make sure that it's an equal playing field. My husband is actually a lacrosse player. And so, yes, there's lacrosse in Harlem. And so we know the importance of sports in the lives of our children, but we hear about, especially as it relates to children of color, we hear a lot about the more traditional sports, football, basketball, baseball, certainly nothing wrong with that. But lacrosse, what is the mission of your organization and why is lacrosse a central part of it? Well, our mission is to work with students and get them across the line. You know, we start with students in sixth grade, and we take them all the way through college. And so our, our goal is to be able to give the students that come to our door the same resources that a child may receive if they lived in a wealthy community. Lacrosse is such a strong and large community of folks who really believe in collaborating with each other for change. And so it's exciting to be able to bring our children into that community and it's more exciting to see that community open its doors and really want to do great things for kids. And so we serve uh, 1,400 students a year through our five cities, Philadelphia, Baltimore, Boston, L.A. And I'm going to end there's where L.A., Boston, so New York, and New York. I always forget New York. <laughs> Harlem. <laughs> I, I always be in New York. And so we work with students, you know, within these communities, and we try to remove the barriers. We work with them to remove the barriers that get in the way of them either being enrolled, enlisted, um, or, or employed. And so we start early with them, and then we use our network. We have a really great network of professional leaders who open their doors for our students through internships, through funding. Um, some of our children actually go off to boarding school to get a different kind of education. While that's not for everyone, it certainly works for those students that are looking for something different, and we facilitate that happening to them. And you talked about barriers. What types of barriers are you referring to? Well, it's funny. You know, when I first um, went on as the senior director of development, one of the first things that I did was said, we're going to change the language. Right? We're going to talk about these students very different. We're not going to call them privileged under anything. We're going to say that they are living in communities that have been myself to them. And so when we talk about the barriers, we're talking about systemic barriers that have nothing to do with the 
and most likely nothing to do with their parents. But those barriers, you know, in neighborhoods that have been divested in, the schools are strong. And so we start a program director in every school that we work in so that those students have an extra sense of support throughout the day and after school. And so we work through any barrier that's going to get in the way of that student walking through a hallowed door of education or walking into a job or walking into the military. We, we work to remove those barriers with the team and their safety. And so you talk about students walking into the military, walking into the job. How old is your organization, and have you had the opportunity to track these students beyond Harlem Lacrosse into their adult lives? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We actually are celebrating our 10th year anniversary, um, March 31st, in New York. And we are expecting 500 folks um, in the room to celebrate, you know, all the things that we've done. We have um, probably the best evidence for me is that we have three folks on staff that actually were a part of the first team. Wow. The first team that we ever had. And those three folks are on staff. And they, you know, worked it. They wanted to see the same things for those youth that happened for them. Our results are phenomenal. You know, I really wasn't looking to go and work in a youth organization. I really wasn't. And, you know, you got when the spirit calls, you just go there, right? And it really wasn't my, but when I looked at the mission and I saw the work, I knew that I could make an impact there. I knew that, it, you know, the staff was probably some of the most passionate young folks that I've worked with that really want to see change. And, and we, we've done such phenomenal things over the 10 years of our existence. Dr. I, you had a question. Yes, is this co-ed? It is. It, of course it is. Yes. Okay, we, um, okay. I just didn't hear the, that term used. And um, uh, is, it, is it tilted one way or the other? You know what? Um, I was also one of the first things that I wanted to do when I got there was make sure that it wasn't Last year, we have um, we have a promise to a girl, and we had an event in New York where we invited the women who are part of our movement to join, and let's talk about what we give to a girl. And so the way that we measure um, for our girls are different. You cannot measure a girl like you measure a boy. And so we look at the things that help girls be successful very differently. You know, one of the greatest things we've done is we started a national team for girls. It's really difficult when you look at the sport of lacrosse. Um, very few girls of color are on those fields. And so we started a national team where our girls could have um, a physical space and a group of people who were going to love them through that process so that they could play and think about playing in college afterwards. So it, it, it will never be tilted as long as I'm sitting in my seat. And so since we're talking about history, let's go back just a little bit. You didn't just happen to stumble across Harlem Lacrosse, and they didn't just happen to stumble across you. Let's, let's go back to a comment that you made that your husband played lacrosse. So you have some history yeah. with, with unusual, let's say, sports for people of color. I do. I do. I, I, my husband played lacrosse, and 
My daughter actually played field hockey at the University of Maryland and lacrosse. She graduated from Maryland and then Louisville asked her, would she come and do a grad year of lacrosse? And so we have an extensive experience. And my husband actually coaches for a local team here in, in our city. So we have a really different view of those sports from being participants. And not just participants, but really getting to the higher places um, in those sports and still seeing that those doors w- wouldn't open, that those doors wouldn't open. And so for, for me, after living it, you know, after seeing you know, my daughter was in the Olympic program and, and throughout even all of that, she couldn't break that door down. And so I, I think that's why the universe put me here so that we can start breaking those doors down. See, no field should exclude a child. No field should exclude a child. And so we really work to make sure that that doesn't occur. So our background as a family is really different, you know, um, in the fact that we have been engaged in sports that typically um, don't, you know, have a lot of children of color in them. You know, I talk to folks when we're talking about sports and folks will say, oh, my child's going to play basketball or football. And I say, that's good. That's good. But let me tell you where lacrosse, where they go when they play lacrosse. They go to schools like Harvard. They go to schools like Brown. They go to Ivy League schools. So it's very different than football, you know, where Ohio State reigns supreme. Lacrosse is kind of an Ivy sport. And so what you have to teach children is to think beyond the moment and think about the network. Think about the network behind it. And so lacrosse has a really strong network um, of people who are there to support others through that process. So I'm sorry, my dog's going to bark. We're, we're used to pets now in our virtual world. So tell your dog we said hello. And, 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 and I know you well enough to know that your dog is part of your family and that you're very big on family. And so I'm going to guess that when you showed up with your kids in tow at these sporting events saying my kids are going to play, there weren't a lot of people who looked like you or your children. What was that like? And how did you deal with it? And how did they deal with it? You know, I really want to be able to, I would love to be able to say that it was an easy process. It hasn't been, you know, we recognize that there are still some places, a lot of places in America that has not fully accepted the fact that anyone and everyone belongs. And so I would love to say, oh my God, it was a great ride. It really wasn't. (laughs) It really wasn't. You know, my daughter was um, the best in the Midwest, two-time All-American, yada, 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 yada. However, (laughs) however, her breaking into that sport and getting into the places where she um, deserves to be has been difficult. And so I try to help, I try to help change the system, change the system so that this, remember what I said about all the networking, because that's really what it comes down to in the end is networking. And there's so much networking that could occur, you know, for a student who's playing these sports. And so first we have to change the system. And and so I'd like our our listeners to reflect on that for just a moment, whether it's lacrosse or some other aspect of your life, being a barrier breaker is not easy. And it comes down to a few simple, not so simple tasks. And one of those would be networking. 
And you've done that throughout your entire life, Frederick. We're going to go to break in just a moment, and I want to finish our discussion about Harlem Lacrosse. But when we do come back, I want to talk again historically about what led you to Harlem Lacrosse. But but let's finish up with that for a moment. So if if someone's listening to this and says, "Gee, I'd like for my child to be part of Harlem Lacrosse," I would assume they have to be one of, in one of those five cities you talked about. Is that correct? Yes, but but there are places in Columbus or in our local community that have lacrosse programs um, that they could join. You know, certainly every high school, you know, most high schools have lacrosse. Um, As I said, my husband coaches uh, high school girls um, right now. So there's places to fit into it. But I'd love to see more of us there because of the assets that we get when they participate on that side of the and, and how does one learn how to play lacrosse or field hockey? There are lots of places to go to, to sign up to learn how to play the traditional sports, but how do you learn how to do something non-traditional and be a history maker yourself? Well, you have to be unafraid, unafraid to walk through a door that um, maybe you really weren't fully invited in. You know, I mean, you, your parents have to think differently. You know, they have to think different. They have to say, what are the goals? for my child and, and can football or basketball get them there and maybe it can and maybe it can but i when it looks when we talk about black girls in the sport of lacrosse if nine black girls play lacrosse four of them are going to get a college scholarship hmm. now, that's a pretty great number to me <laughs> you know and, and i'm not here to advocate for sports i'm here to advocate that whatever you can get from that sport get it go get it you know, just going and playing at a school is nothing. It is really about getting the education. You know, I look at my daughter who just um, who finished that with her master's and all that. And with her master's and undergrad, I think she owes like less than $10,000 now. And, and it, it, any parent who's paying for college knows that that's a plus. <laughs> that's a plus. So it wasn't our intention for her to be the best athlete. It was our intention for her to understand how to use those networks to move into her life and and how to activate them. So it really wasn't, we really weren't looking when we first started for her to become, you know, this superstar athlete. We really weren't. We really, you know, it really helped a lot for her. She went to a prep school um, and the prep school offered it. And so that's how she got into it. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to continue talking to Frederica Wallace-Dina, who we we called in our promotion for this show a nonprofit pioneer. So we're going to talk more about her history on this Women's History Month show. But in the meantime, I would assume that people can contribute, since you're development director, you're head of fundraising, that people can contribute to Harlem Lacrosse if they choose to do so. How would they do that? Oh, yes. They would go to harlemlacrosse.com. If you pull us up, we're there, and, you know, and, and see where they can join in with us. We're always looking for internships for our youth. You know, it's not just about money. I think a lot of folks, one of the things I think is important in fundraising is to open up the, the gate so that a lot of folks can fit in. Not just the very wealthy, but a lot of folks. And so we try to have ways that um, anyone you know, anyone can participate. We're always looking for mentors, 
you know, we're always looking for guests to come and tell our youth how they got there. And so there's so many different, a variety of ways. But if you go to Harlem Lacrosse, you'll, you'll see all of that. That's Harlem Lacrosse, H-A-R-L-E-M. L-A-C-R-O-S-S-E dot org. Go to that site during our break. Read more about the organization and we'll be right back with Senior Development Director and nonprofit pioneer Frederica Wallace-Dina on the window. We're back on the window celebrating Women's History Month by talking to women who in their own right are local and oftentimes that expands to regional and national history makers. If you missed the first part of the show, you can catch it and all of our past shows on our website, thewindownow.com. But Frederica was telling us very modestly about many years ago, her role as a mother who took her daughter by the hand and went to a lacrosse field of all places and said to a group that didn't look like her, I want my daughter to do this. And then years later is the director of development now for a national organization, Harlem Lacrosse. But Frederica, you being a pioneer, and that's a word that we came up with when we try to describe you in our promotion. That's not new. When mm-hmm. I first met you, we worked together at one of the largest United Ways in the country, and you had the nerve to come up with a real unique idea at the time. Why don't we let neighborhoods decide what they need and then partner yeah. with them <laughs> to help meet those needs? Where did that radical idea come from? You know, and it's funny, I read something the other day. Someone said, I see you still pushing the envelope. And I never saw it as pushing the envelope. What's right is what's right, right? So it's really not pushing the envelope. It's about challenging the things that we think are right. And there's nothing right about people landing a little bit like Columbus, landing, not Columbus, Ohio, but, you know, Columbus, landing in a community or on a community and then telling them what they need. And, and I think it's, that probably started for me as a child. You know, I remember uh, Urban Renewal came in and it changed our neighborhood. And it changed me. It changed me. And so I knew that from that point on that I would fight to make sure that folks that live in the community had say-so in how they live. Say-so in how they live. And so in any organization that I join, I, I speak up for the people who live there because they are the experts. And so instead of us, you know, going out and finding the best nonprofit exec to come in and solve problems um, that they may or may not understand, why don't we put the power with the people who live there? Why don't we put the power there? Because they understand what's going on. And we, you know, we pay nonprofit execs a lot of money to solve these problems in places that they really don't understand a lot of times. They don't understand the culture. They don't understand the dynamics. And so we have allowed that. And so when you look at our outcomes, you know, our human services outcomes, you know there's something that we haven't done right. And the right thing that we haven't done is given the power to the people who live there to say, okay, this is what I want changed. I don't want crime in my neighborhood. We're going to start block watch. All right. And you know what? We're going to give you stipends when, for, for you, you know, helping us out. But we expect neighborhood folks to do this great work for free um, alongside nonprofit leaders who make a lot of money to do it. And so I just think that that system is unbalanced and 
luckily at United Way, when you and I were there, um, they heard me, you know, they heard me. And, and so we started the Neighborhood Partnership Center, teaching neighborhood groups how to be strong, be strong enough to go into the community and um, have the capacity, have the capacity to be um, exceptional in their work. And that was really a different thought. It was a different thought for United Way then, um, and the Neighborhood Partnership Center still exists. So, you know, obviously it was an idea that was waiting to come. And so I live on that. I, I live on that, that if I'm working with somebody or some organization or some group, I am not the expert. What makes me the expert? I go to the expert. And so that's, that's kind of my philosophy about how I do. So, you know, social work is really not about me. It's about hearing the voices of the folks who live there and then giving them power and then giving them power. And why wouldn't we? <laughs> why wouldn't we? And so you have a long track record then to, to stay consistent with our history theme. You have a history throughout your career of really applying business solutions in the nonprofit environment. What, what made you want to devote your career to health and human services? You know, as I said earlier, you know, I lived in a community and when Urban Renewal came in, uh, that was when we had this influx of people who were called social workers. I I didn't know what those were until they came in and took over our community. And when they came in and they took over, it was very obvious that this community that was full of doctors and lawyers and coal miners and Indian chiefs, right? It was very obvious that the model that they were using did not give them any power. It didn't, it didn't give them power. And so, so for me as a child, I kept that. And so my first job um, out of college was as a community organizer. I, you know, I wanted to go into communities, and, and I did some really cool stuff. Like one time in D.C., we went to a Safeway um, where, the, where the food was different, and, you know, food can be different in different neighborhoods. And the food was different, and so our folks paid in city. And so I love that. I love that work. But unfortunately, I realized I couldn't live. I couldn't live off of that work. And so, you know, I learned other things like grant writing and, you know, how to raise money because that, you know, that I could feed my own family. But I started out um, on, on the street. I started out as a community organizer. And that has always been my philosophy. There's a guy named Saul Alinsky. And Saul Alinsky, you know, he did some really cool things in, in, in Chicago. Saul, actually, there was a, a sewage problem, and they wouldn't fix it in this city. And so he had this big uh, bean dinner. And he invited the folks from the neighborhood to come and eat beans. <laughs> and then he gave them tickets to go to the opera where the mayor and his wife were. And so after that, they fixed it. You know, they fixed it. And so I, you know, I just really believe in that philosophy of shared power, shared power. And not all the time has that been welcomed at the table, you know. <laughs> um, and, and I don't mind. I don't, I don't mind pushing that agenda because we're not going to have change until we ask for it. And so, and so I make sure that when a community asks for it, that they are set up to look like any other nonprofit. Any, so there'll be no reasons or excuses 
why we can't help them. So I might work with the community-based organization to make sure that they have a strong board, you know, strong board leadership, that their program and program outcomes will look the same as any other organization. And that's critical. So, so to those listening, again, we always try to leave our listeners with some message. And the message is that all around you, there are people making a difference. Our theme for today, actually, for this Women's History Month show is respected and regal. And Frederica Wallace-Dina is just one example of many throughout the country who has gained an enormous amount of respect for focusing on our health and human services needs as a volunteer, as a mom, as a wife, and as an executive now, we're so appreciative for the, for the difference that you've made in our community okay. and now nationally through Harlem Lacrosse. Well, listen, I'm sitting, I'm sitting with two greats. <laughs> you know, it couldn't be more forward greats. Right. We, we don't even have time today to talk about the difference you've made in, in my life personally by teaching uh-huh. me how to advocate for my child at a young age. Uh-huh. And so that's a different topic for a different show we'll bring in. My son at the age of two was determined to have developmental dis- delays. And he went to the same school as Frederica's daughter. And Frederica took me by the hand and mentored me on how to uh-huh. now mentor himself as a 26-year-old on how to survive and succeed in a world where he was different at the age of two and now he's mainstreamed if you will we use those terms very loosely but Frederica is an advocate in so many ways and so we appreciate you taking the time we're going to let you get on with your Saturday and bring on our next guest but we appreciate all you do thank you for joining us on the window you know, Dr. I, we and, and Frederica made brief mention of her husband, and, and we always say to our listeners that we are not trying to, to by celebrating Women's History Month, we're not trying to diminish the role of men at all and the role that men have made in what we as women do. So this is just a, a brief shout out. Our next guest who's going to join us in just a moment has a track record of being in business with her mate. And that's not something that a lot of us can do. Um, We're going to give you just for a moment a brief preview of our upcoming shows. But first, let us remind you that you can also catch our past shows. You can go to our website, thewindownow.com, and you will see the shows from our last year. And in March, we're celebrating a milestone here, too. This is our one-year anniversary of The Window, so please go to thewindownow.com. Also, if you want to talk to us, you can do that via our email site, and that's the windowfeedback at gmail.com. You can send us input before, during, and after the show at the windowfeedback at gmail.com. And we so appreciate those of you who have listened to us every week. We so appreciate our more than 100 guests who have graced us with their presence. And we're about to bring the next of those guests on now. So in our town and in your town as well, last week we focused on entrepreneurs. And in every city, there are entrepreneurs who started out that way and soon became business icons. And so we are delighted to have a business icon in our town. Her name is Kathy Ranzier. And I'm going to read you just a bit about Kathy's background, but then I'm going to let her tell her history and her story because she occupies a very phenomenal position in my mind right now. But Kathy Ranzier 
was a partner with the Voorhees Law Firm here in Columbus, Ohio. And again, you have similar law firms all around the country. And so you likely know how extraordinary a task it is to become a partner and especially to become a partner as a black female. But I'm going to stop right there. And as I said, I'm going to let her tell her own story and her own history. But first, I'm going to welcome Kathy Ranzier to the window, and I'm going to let her give us a one-word description that starts with an R of her employment status right now. Welcome, Kathy. Hi, welcome. Thanks for having me. Hi, Kathy. Hi, Riz. Um, I'm going to start with... Yes, she's talking. Kathy, if you could turn up your volume just a little bit if you're able to do that. Yes, let me do that. How's that sound? That sounds a lot better. Iris is saying hello as well. Hi. Hi. How are you and the family? Good. Good. Yes. Kathy, please tell us, I I told our audience that I was going to talk about your stellar background as an attorney and in other capacities, but first, I said there's a word that starts with an R that describes your employment status right now, and I'm very jealous of that. Well, it's, yes, it starts with an R, but and it's retirement, but I don't think it's supposed to be. You broke up on us. You're breaking up on us. Say that again, please. I think it's um, different from what those in the past may have characterized as retirement. So uh, can you hear me now? I can. So tell yeah. us what retirement is like now. Okay. I, I define my retirement as not practicing law. And by that, I mean I'm doing lots of other stuff I continued to, was doing throughout my career and that I continue to do mainly civic-based, serving on boards. I serve on the Lincoln Theater Board. I'm also on a board uh, called Campus Park, which uh, is a company that purchased uh, rights to um, the um, regarding the uh, parking lots and garages at Ohio State University which is really fascinating. I also continue to do a lot of mentoring, uh, mainly of um, young women, especially attorneys. I spend a lot of time having fun now, a lot more time, and certainly with grandchildren and friends. And uh, I'm looking forward to all of these things expanding uh, in the post-COVID era. (laughs) That's great. So let's go back to your history. When I first met you, you were actually part of a a law firm called Ranzier and Ranzier. So tell us how that came about and then ultimately how you became a partner in a major law firm. Okay, well, Ranzier and Ranzier was, um, its genesis was uh, when I had my first job after college, I worked for a a large company and um, and I, uh, I lived in Huntington, West Virginia. Uh, there was, even though we were out of what they call segre- what was uh, segregation, there was still lots of discrimination. And uh, along the way, I learned that ter- as an attorney, I could work for myself. So I knew I wanted to go back to college. I mean, back, yeah, I wanted to continue my education. And I considered, so I decided to go to law school. I had the good fortune of being admitted to a few selected Ohio State because of its proximity to uh, my parents, and um, 
and I had a you know had a, a very successful tenure at Ohio State's law school. And the first day of law school, actually the day before the first day, I met Fred, Fred Rancier, and uh, whom I married in third year. And uh, I shared with him uh, my dream of self-employment. And so we both, after we graduated, worked for uh, the state of Ohio. And then about two years into that employment, we decided that no time was like the present. And so we decided to open our own firm our parents thought we were really crazy but uh but you know it was our dream and we figured if we don't do it now we probably would never do it and we uh we had the good fortune it was you know and we was successful very successful and so what was that like working with your spouse uh well it was um I consider, I think it was really the easiest, I take this the right way, the easiest relationship we shared. And I think it's because we started law school together, we went through it together, we had a mutual respect for, you know, what we learned, our strengths and weaknesses. Uh, you know, it, it, was, it was really easy for us. Um, we also, in our practice, represented a lot of businesses, and a lot of those were husband and wife-owned businesses. And so we were able also to learn from um, the people that we served. So um, it was it was it wasn't that difficult uh, in all candor. And we were also uh, Joanna really aware that uh, we were supporting one household. I that I, that was a, an advantage that we had that um, you know that that may not have been uh, there had we been two attorneys not working, you know, not married to each other. So we were working toward the same goal. Kathy, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, Dr. I has some questions for you as we celebrate Women's History Month on the window. Thank you. We're back on the window celebrating Women's History Month. Respected and regal is our theme for today. We have formerly practicing attorney Kathy Ranzier on the line, who started out, and I really like this, by explaining to us what retirement means in this day and age and how she's continuing to use her passions and her connections and her reputation to still make a difference. Dr. I, you had some questions for Kathy? Well, you know what? I didn't have any questions. I was just reflecting that... Um, back in the 80s, when we were all out on the street, um, we were kind of um, setting the stage for the future. Don't you think, Kathy, for for black women and men um, in Absolutely. leadership positions? Absolutely. I mean, we were all, for the most part, we, are, we were the first, and we were also, mm-hmm. at every turn, breaking down barriers. But when I speak to, mm-hmm. especially I speak to you and to Joanna, I mean, you... Iris, you, your foray, your jobs at the banks, both of you, uh, uh, really helped help me to develop my practice in ways for which I could never repay you. I mean, you know, we supported each other, we looked for each mm-hmm. other, we mentored each other. Uh, mm-hmm. I had a, a reason a couple of weeks ago to, to just a list, uh, make a list of women who uh, who made that difference early on. And uh, among yourselves, it was, I, I was just so gratified 
that I could think of so many. And so, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, we were we, we, we extended our, our arms and we supported each other and mentored each other. So it was terrific. And we had children, too. We were no juggling question. kids. Exactly. And that made it even more challenging. Exactly. Although, I, you know, I do add that um, early on, I, I took advantage of uh, some opportunities. And so I hired. Uh, I hired people to help me. I, that out, really that grew out of uh, my middle son uh, was physically uh, handicapped, and so you know I was in that network. It also taught me that um, I could generally use the benefit of help. So I always managed and had over over the years a lot of really good people. As the firm became more successful, also took advantage of those opportunities and you know sometimes Fred and I would just hold our breath but we go ahead and hire paralegals more secretaries other attorneys that was a that was a giant step for us but it also allowed us to spend more meaningful time with our sons our friends our other family members and um, made life you know far better also the last thing I'll add is technology I mean it just kept coming uh, coming along just as we seemed to need it and uh, the cell phone was just so wonderful. We take it for granted now. Sometimes I think it's abuse. But nonetheless, at that time, don't you think it was really so Oh, my gosh. It's excellent. Excellent. Uh, in ways that we could not have before. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I, I like the conversation that the two of you just had about supporting each other. And I would say that about our last guest, too, which I briefly mentioned just before she hung up, the way that that personally women can support each other professionally. So Kathy is just a role model to me of someone who's just always been genuine. She's always mm-hmm. been approachable. She's always been upfront. She's always been empathetic and she's always been a role model and a mentor. We sometimes talk about crabs in the barrel, us trying to pull each other down. None of that with Kathy and I just don't believe mm-hmm. any of that has to exist at all among women and people who are confident um, within themselves. But Kathy, you had to have an awful lot of confidence to not only start a firm and start a firm with your husband, but then you two then became partners in a major law firm. Tell us how that happened. Well, we, um, as I just said, Rancy and Rancy exceeded all of our expectations in terms of its success. I'll just digress for one second. A lot of the growth also came from attorneys and others in the large law firms referring business to to us as especially corporations became sensitive to wanting uh, those who provided them goods and services to reflect those that purchased those services from them. So, uh, you know, we were able to do work for Honda and Wendy's and and several others. And as a consequence, you know, we we were we we made those made I'm sorry cultivated those relationships as as well. But we also saw some changes coming about in the profession, and uh, we from time to time been asked by uh, the larger firms uh, to uh, join them. And in the past, um, I guess the main reason I had was um, I did not want the pressure of having children. I saw I could see that 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 was a pressure that women in the law, larger law firms, uh, I think they had a much more difficult uh, road than those of us that weren't. We could, you know, control our own destiny. So, uh, but 
um, and I say this with my, my heart filled, uh, our, our middle son, uh, he passed away, and, um, and it changed that dynamic. Also, like I was saying, the, the profession started to change, and you needed to have access to specialists, especially since ours was a business, largely business-based practice. So uh, we, we started talking about that to a few friends, and before we knew it, we were contacted by several of the law, large law firms. And we, um, we took our time. We took about 18 months to make a decision, and then uh, we decided to join the Boris Law Firm. Uh, I will say for me, I was, um, Joanna, I was, I, was, and I, was, I was really naive in many respects. I, I should have given it a lot more thought and, and consideration, uh, frankly. Um, it was much di- more different, the culture, um, you know, how women were still perceived in large measure. And I would add that Boris was no different from any of the larger firms across the country. And in fact, the, you know, the profession was largely male and, uh, and still was a, it was a very slow growth in changing that. The law schools over time had reached percentages of 50% women, but the profession and, and in the large firms as, as, as well as corporations, it wasn't nearly that number. So it, I faced uh, challenges that I didn't expect to, and, as, and I, especially with regard to my stature. And, and so, of course, the unfortunate part of this is if, if I were to read Kathy's resume, we, we simply wouldn't have time, all the awards and honors that, that she's accumulated. And you've made it look relatively easy. But from what you're telling us, the, you broke down doors. You helped remove barriers for others. Well, I'd look back, and uh, one thing I have to, um, in my retirement, I am putting my, really putting my arms around it and around it and accepting uh, Joanna and Iris the uh, the challenges of it. I mean, it was hard, and it was very very difficult in hindsight. I had a lot of joy that went along with it because I had joy in my life. Otherwise, I had great friends and so on and so forth. But you know, being among the first and um, in in many 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 instances being the only one in the room. Um, and, you know, hearing things that you wanted to correct, in some instances I was able to do that in ways that uh, didn't isolate me from uh, the others in the room, but a lot of times uh, you knew, I knew I couldn't and not end up being, in, that I'd end up ineffective. And it became uh, more important for me, at least, to try to effectuate what change I could among those folks. Does that make sense? You know what I mean? We've we've been there, done that, and and so yeah. to to people, women women of color, even young men who who want to be you when they grow up, what advice would you give them? Um, I would say um, I was able to I benefited from uh, you know a solid grounding when I when I think about you know my parents and I had you know great parents I had a value system. That was solid. Um, the golden rule has always been part of my life. You know, do unto others as I would have them do unto me. Uh, there was also um, a pride and in, in integrity. Uh, uh, as I learned from a lot of other women, uh, my my dad in particular, my dad really. Emph- I had five sisters. Six daughters. He had six daughters, but he drilled into us literally to be uh, self-supportive. 
that you know you you uh, you go to college to uh, find a means of supporting yourself. And if you happen to encounter a husband or end up with a husband, that's great. <laughs> but uh, mm-hmm. but we were we were we, we were all you know geared in that that regard. But you know I think um, you want to have some, you want to have spirituality in your life. Uh, I I use the phrase I I give advice so I take advice from time to time when I've needed it. I've sought out uh, help from uh, mental health professionals, therapists, whatever. I I I, I take pride in doing that when it was needed. And um, I also, um, I think you guys would probably um, agree with me, I I really have had fun, and I really have uh, a sense of humor. <laughs> so um, those things have, you know, I, those things have made me as very much who I am. So, Dr. I and I love the opportunity to tell your story, but we want you to take a moment and tell us your story and, and from the perspective of what was your most memorable moment? That's a huge question, but in your history, what was your most memorable moment and why? Uh, the, actually, that was, that's an easy one for me because it, it came from, um, from really no, no expectation that it would be. I, you know, fairly, fairly much a, a serious person, or you know, even a math major, and you know, was looking at science and all that, all that in terms of the career. So, you know, law was a little bit softer, and uh, but it was it was parenting. It was, um, you know, having having children and just the utter joy. It was it was it was the end of my day was just terrific that I could spend time with them. Um, frankly, as far as working with my husband with Fred. Uh, he loved the kitchen. When we got mm-hmm. home, cooking relaxed him, and it was perfect. So he could, you know, it was he could go in there and plan meals, and he had the kitchen, and I, I had the kids, and um, but that was just utterly joyful. And it, and this phase of my life now with the five grandchildren, it's just grown to that. So I know that might sound a little trite, but it's it's my honest, my that's what honestly was the most significant thing in my life. No, it doesn't sound trite at all. That sounds great. We have just a few more minutes before we wrap up this segment on Respected and Regal, which certainly defines Kathy Ranzier. Kathy, are are we making progress that's acceptable to you, a a young woman growing up today? Will she face the same barriers that you did based on race and gender? Oh, no, I don't think so. And I'm very, I'm very happy for them and, and proud of that. I've by no means will I say that um, all the barriers have come down. There are lots of things, and, and you know, you guys know that there are even setbacks every once in a while. But uh, I look, into, especially in terms of my profession, we have uh, now managing partners of law firms. We have significant roles in, um, in the law, legal law departments of corporations. We have judges. We have, uh, you know, political leaders, etc. We have a vice president of all things. Mm-hmm. I mean, it really is. Um, and Iris, I think you can say the same thing in banking. Um, mm-hmm. I sat on the honey. I should admit, I was on the Huntington Bank Sheriff's Board for twenty years, and um, and there's still, you know, the black woman uh, also that succeeded me. I'd hope there would be more black people on that board, but was was successful in ex- expanding the number of women significantly. But women on boards of directors, uh, it's being taken very seriously now, and um, and with you know a concerted, clearly uh, focused goal of increasing that. 
So um, I, I also enjoy mentoring a number of, of young women, especially those who uh, are going the route that I did to establish their own practices. And I'm just gratified they are extremely successful and they are, you know, uh, exceeding what my expectations were of me. And, and they are mentoring each other. They're connecting much better. I would say that they have a, a sense of camaraderie. No, not the there was also some hints of you know competition that they don't have. I mean, it's healthy, you know, healthy from the standpoint of, of professionalism. But I mean, outside of that, they they really embrace each other as friends and support each other. So I see a lot of improvement. Uh, thank goodness. Uh, but boy, yeah, there, you know, there are things that that. Um, that could obviously think that the percentages are still abysmal in many respects. Uh, you know, the 50% of females in law school, but if you look at the professions and who go on, a lot of those uh, have find a difficult time to find the employment mm-hmm. they desire. So, you know, I'm, I'm, pleased it's be- I'm pleased it's a lot better. And, and I will say, especially for African-American women, I think it's, it's really at, at other fun joy for me to see success that they're enjoying. And Kathy, certainly it's a lot better because of history makers like you. So thank you for joining us for Women's History Month on the window. Dr. I and I are very gratified to be able to introduce to our listening audience someone we've known for so long and admire so much. So thank you and thank you to our listeners today. Dr. I, do you have any closing comments? Well, you know what? When I when I listen to Kathy, I go back those 20 years, and I'm thinking about all the experiences that we shared as we were knocking down those doors and pushing for each other. So I'm just pleased that um, we have you on today, and certainly Fred Frica as well, and just keep doing what you're doing. Well, if I may, let me just say that, you know, I love you, too. I love the book. Mm. You, you know that. We love, we love you. you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's hard. Yep. It's hard. You can listen to all of our past episodes on thewindownow.com, our website. Join us next week, next Saturday, 12 noon Eastern Time, as we finish our celebration of Women's History Month. See you next week, Dr. I. All righty. Bye-bye. Bye, Kathy. Bye, Frederick. Bye. Look at the